Hello, my name is Anthony Campbell and welcome to the Bridging Schism podcast. I'm here at CCU in our podcast studio. I want to shout out Coog Media, my roommate Will Klumpenhauer, Brooks and Autry, and most of all, Coach Stainbrook. Thank you for being with me today. Hey, my honor. Yeah, so let's just jump right in. Coach Stainbrook, when it comes to your life, and what you've done. Can you just kind of give the listeners a little background about who you are and who I'm talking to right now? Wow. So this is what, like a five-hour show? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. Well, I would say in order of priority, uh, I am a Jesus follower. Mm -hmm. I'm a husband. I'm a father. Uh, I get to do the teaching thing here at CCU, which is really cool. Um, and I see it probably more as mentoring uh, because it is a partnership in this thing called digital media in, in teaching the next generation how to do anything in media, visual storytelling, you know, just really how to develop great content. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in a nutshell, that, that's kind of the starting place. I mean, there's a lot of backstories to a lot of those things. Um, I wasn't always a believer. Um, I like to call my, my days before that called PB&J my uh, pre-believer in Jesus days, you know, because <laughs> that's usually what it's like. You know, it feels like you're eat, just eating PBs and Js, yeah. right? <laughs> it's the most basic thing you've got, and, and usually it's just about you, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, but yeah, I had an interesting experience back in 1989 uh, where I was shooting a documentary in Russia, and mm-hmm. I got the wonderful experience to be, uh, to hang out with the KGB for a while. And that uh, changed my mind about some things about what was most important in life. And I realized it wasn't me. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually sent me on a search when I got back to the United States and uh, basically ended up at the foot of the cross and knowing who Jesus was given my life. Pretty interesting. Wow. Changed everything. Yeah. Actually, it really did change everything. Mm-hmm. So if, and I have people that knew me before and then knew me after and were just like, whoa, what happened, you know? So, um, yeah, it, it, interesting time of life and then how God really used everything in my life, good and bad, kind of like Joseph. You know, mm-hmm. you think it was bad stuff, but then he'd press forward and, and make it good. And just over the years, I've, I've been able to see all of that play out. Wow. No, that's, that's phenomenal. Uh, you mentioned back in 1989 that you were shooting a documentary in Russia. What was the documentary about? The documentary was about an ultra marathon with a bunch of international athletes that were coming in to do that. Mm. Uh, it was pre, uh, it was still communist Russia. Yeah. So before they um, came out of that, because that was September. So we were there the summer of 89. Um, and it, it was basically the race, covering a race that went a thousand miles across Siberia in 15 days. And, um, Siberia is actually really different than you think in the summer. You know, everybody okay. thinks of Siberia as this frozen tundra. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in the summertime, it's a nice frozen tundra, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> it is pretty desolate, but we met a lot of really interesting and fun people. Mm-hmm. The race actually went across uh, the service road of the Amur Baikal Railway. Okay. Um, so we followed that service road. And, you know, ultra marathons, as you know, athletes run... 50 to 100 miles a day for multiple days. So yeah, it was an interesting opportunity to be there and and uh, to shoot that stuff and to be in a country that wasn't open to anybody at the time. So yeah, that was really cool. Wow. And so obviously dealing with just crazy people because who likes to run 50 to 100 miles for fun? Yeah. 
uh, not only that, what was what was your interaction with the Russians that were um, basically carrying you along as you were filming? Yeah, the um, we had a lot of interesting things. I mean, we were lucky. So my buddy and I were the ones that got a chance to go on this trip uh, and cover it basically for the world, you know, mm -hmm. and bring back all this footage. Uh, and we actually had uh, uh, an army van assigned to us with an army driver, mm. Vladimir. And uh, Vladimir, you know, you get to know these people and kind of hang out. And even when you can't speak the language, uh, you there's some way to communicate. And over time, you start to share words. And before you know it, you're figuring all kinds of stuff out. So I always had my little Berlitz book with me mm -hmm. that I'd pop open. And, you know, it was, it was before cell phones and before anything digital. So I'd pop that open. You know, you'd have this little conversation through the through the translation book. And uh, mm -hmm. it was pretty cool. But, yeah, that, that was an interesting experience. And um, we had international runners from Australia, Canada, the United States, Finland. Uh, I'm trying to think. Well, Russia. Mm -hmm. and, and, again, remember, Russia at the time was all of the different countries that now uh, are in different, you know, the Ukraine, Kazakhstan, mm -hmm. Estonia, all that places. The thing I don't think people realized about that, that Russia at that time is, you know, we have four time zones in the United States. Yeah. Russia had 13. And we were in 11 of them. Wow. Yeah, so in our travels, uh, we got a chance to go from Moscow all the way almost to North Korea, and then back. Um, yeah, it was pretty interesting. I think to get to the beginning of what we thought was going to be the beginning of the race, mm -hmm. uh, I think it was an eight-hour plane ride, a three-hour plane ride, a 24-hour ride in a train, and then another 16 hours in an army jeep to get to the beginning of the race. And it was interesting, the whole race, the way it went down was we were supposed to head east to the Pyongyang, uh, basically the youth sports festival, yeah. which is like the Pan Am Games for the, for the Americas. Um, and we got turned down when we tried to show up. And so they made up a race and just turned it around and ran the other way. Um, and so they still did a race for the athletes, but it wasn't the originally planned race that, that everybody thought was going to happen. So, yeah, no, yeah. it sounds sounds like quite a quite a quite a twist in the journey. And speaking of twists, what ended up uh, happening in order for you to provoke the KGB to uh, <laughs> present themselves before you? Yeah, I don't know if it was provoke, but um, <laughs> you know, it, what, you do have to consider that uh, my buddy and I both, you know, kind of wise guys from Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, not afraid to take chances or to have fun or, you know, just to be goofballs. Um, it was obvious when we got there, and, and I grew up as an athlete, so, you know, athletes have a personality and a way that they interact and all this stuff. And there were about four runners from the Russian team that didn't really look like ultra marathoners, didn't look like they fit in, and nobody else was really hanging out with them, even the Russians. Mm -hmm. And uh, it came out just kind of through hearsay that they were KGB assigned to the race to watch my buddy and I because they thought we were CIA. Mm. Um, and so we kind of played with that. Like we we're like, oh, if that's what they think we are, let's have some fun. And so, you know, we found ourselves talking into our sleeves and, you know, um, rolling up little notes and leaving them in trees in the middle of Siberia just to see what these guys would do. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and it just got interesting, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
well, we'd be it was it was it was wild because every day one of their team members would somehow you know run like five six miles and oh ooh, my leg my leg but he would let all the support vehicles go by and he would end up in our jeep also there was this ongoing switch of somebody would always end up in our jeep mm. and so like i said my buddy and i brendan we would just screw with these guys nonstop. we're like okay that does it one day they got in and i was building like a satellite dish out of hangers and aluminum foil you know and oh hey igor what are you doing here you know and i mean just way too obvious it was almost like a bad comedy mm -hmm. um and then uh I i'm trying to think of how many days in it was quite a few days in because we were pretty far across but usually our nightly stops were in small towns that were maintenance towns for the railway right and there was always some kind of party or celebration or you know athletes are coming through and people of the town would come out and they'd feed us dinner and we'd hang out and it, it really was a cross-cultural experience to be able to be well communist russia no had not not too many americans had ever been where we were uh let alone with cameras yeah right and so um a lot of the footage that we brought back was just really incredible but when we got to one of the big cities, I don't know, about halfway into the race, um, a team of guys showed up and they took my buddy and I and we, I, I don't know, I guess they thought we were spies. Mm -hmm. um, and we were just like, well, gosh, they really don't have a sense of humor in Russia. And, and uh, so we had a little bit of time with them, of them just trying to figure out who we were, why we were there. Um, they made us sign some papers uh, that I still have, by the way. Um, and then it was interesting because one of the guys from our team uh, that was one of the KGB agents, supposedly, um, he showed up after we had been with these guys for a while. And, and it, when he walked into the room, he didn't look happy. Mm -hmm. And so, and you could tell something was wrong. And it was almost like the people who took us did the wrong thing. And so he said something and was very angry and they just foot, foot, whisked us out and we were inserted back into the race like nothing ever happened. So missed a little bit of it, but again, who knows? Um, continued then shooting the race. <clears throat> they dropped us off in what was then Kiev. Um, and off at the, like the Olympic Village, there was a training camp outside of the city that we got a chance to stay in. Um, and then after that, we went back, back to Moscow. And as we were getting on the plane, they were kind of strip searching all the athletes and everybody that had been there. And we had been threatened with our equipment being taken away. And I had basically told my buddy, like, look, man, if they just like give them whatever they want, just it, just let's get out of here. Like this country has been enough for me. Yeah. Um, and so with everybody being, they're just going through their bags and checking everything. And, and I'm thinking, boy, we're, we're going to lose everything we have here. We had like a $75,000 camera with us. We had about 13 cases of gear. We had shot everything on old style beta SP tapes. So we had cases of tapes that were shot. Um, and we had been told a lot when we had come to Russia of what not to shoot. There was a big old list of what not to shoot and what and how. And like you weren't allowed to shoot at an airport. You weren't allowed to shoot. You weren't allowed to do a pan. Well, we pan all the time. We, t you know what I mean? Yeah. It's 
Japan shows proximity. Well, mm -hmm. they didn't want you to show proximity because they didn't want people to know where you were um, okay. in, in all of these different places that we were across the whole country. Um, so I'm just thinking through the list of don't do's and all of the things that I broke basically by doing. Um, I, I would regularly walk around with my camera on in places that they were like, no cameras. I'm like, oh, okay. And, you know, we have a habit where we tape the red light. We tape over it or we turn it off on purpose so that nobody knows when our cameras are rolling. Yeah. And so I got really good. At, I had this sling that I had made for the big camera. I should have brought the camera in for my interview, man. I, I mean, I have it in my office. It's just wow. this monstrous camera. And I had it um, kind of slung off my shoulder down next to my hip. And, you know, they'd be giving us this tour of some place and, I would be like, whoa, that's real. Well, that's amazing over there. Them not realizing that over here I'm shooting everything that's going on. Yeah. Right. And so, like I said, we had tons of amazing footage that we were hoping to come back with. And again, waiting to get on the plane to come home and thinking we're going to lose everything. And what a bummer. Uh, what a waste of our time here, you know. And uh, when we walked up, one of the guys that was part of the four uh, walked up to the security guard and and basically whispered something in his ear, flashed some bad and badge, and the guy said, just come through, pass through, pass through. I'm like, okay, okay, pass through, you know, and we just work, work from one side of the line to the next side. Nobody opened a case. Nobody looked at anything. And as I was getting on the plane to come home, this guy came up to me, gave me this big Russian bear hug, and he said, he whispered in my ear, this time you live, my spy friend. And we got on the plane and we came home. That's so, incredible. That pretty crazy. No, absolutely. And when so when you pull up to the town and you see these officers kind of surrounding you, what was the first thought that entered your, your mind? You know, that whole trip was so bizarre. We didn't know why anybody was there or why they would choose us out of. So, so we really didn't know what was going on. Um, there was a lot of disorganization on this trip where things, nothing went as planned. Mm -hmm. And so there was always something wacky happening where you're like, well, I wonder what's going on now. Oh, we're taking a boat trip to where? Okay, whatever, you know. And so it, it was almost this very guided view of Russia to make it look really great. And and I will say that, that you know, when we got into the groove of going through these little towns and, and figured out what the schedule was, mm -hmm. You know, it was normal. We'd roll in and we'd take a little break and sometimes we'd grab showers if possible and then we'd go to the dinner and then they tried to keep us cordoned off and right in this thing. And um, a couple days into the race, my buddy and I, I one of us, were, I'm really tired. I'm just going to go back and wherever we were staying. And then we would sneak out and we would just go knock on doors and, and talk to people. And again, my little Berlitz book. And um, it was really incredible people. It was really nice and friendly and curious and as anybody would be of of being able to interact with somebody from a different country uh let alone countries that are at the time cold war we we you know didn't like each other yeah so um yeah it was it was really a blast but in seeing the people like i said there wasn't any initial like oh my gosh it was like you're coming with us like okay like thinking that they were taking like who knows right and then it turned out to be something just very different than what it should have and you know enduring or, or putting up with the questions and uh, accusations and again being forced to sign something that said we promised whatever I don't know 
what it was just bizarre you know so um but it was good to when the other guy showed up and was like big mistake don't do that and we were out of there so um yeah it's pretty interesting yeah had so obviously had someone take a liking to you and uh enjoying your presence even though you were you and your friend were messing around with him and maybe some of the other agents a little bit yeah, right. and, and enjoying yourselves. And so, as you said, when you came back, all of a sudden something changed. Yeah, you know, when, when I think when you're young and invincible, um, right, what your question was. My question was, how did things change internally for you when you got back? You just encountered the KGB, you know, you're about to get strip searched, the officer comes up to you, you know, basically says, get going, get lost. And now you're back wondering hey, what just happened to me. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting. There were so many things. I do know my buddy, much later on, we talked about the whole idea of PTSD, of so many things happen to you and it affects how you think. And I do remember being there wondering as, an invincible, you know, business owner, camera person, well-known in the industry, trying to figure out what, this is not the time I want life to stop. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, um, you know, there's another psychological term, PTGS. And it's, it's basically ta taking the stress of a situation and popping out on the other side, post-traumatic growth syndrome what can you take that's negative or or impacts you in a negative way in your life and turn it to something positive and i think that that's was the next thing for me of looking what was going on the interesting thing is you have to go back a couple years um because the question is what is it about that experience that then put me on a path to even look for christ yeah right um, or look for something that had more meaning than just me Right. And a, a few years back, I had been racing Hobie cats on the Jersey Shore. So Hobie cats are sailboats, you know, the ones with the pontoons. One comes up They're They're kind of like Formula One racers. I mean, they, they go really fast and it's a blast. And, yeah. you know, uh, it, it's so much fun. And um, but the regular circuit was, uh, you know, you would go down on a Friday night and you'd put your boat on the beach and then you would hit the bars. And then you go race all day on Saturday, and then you go hit the bars, and you race all day on Sunday, and you'd go home, right? And hopefully mm -hmm. with hardware, trophies, you know, yeah. from winning a race or not. Well, those Friday and Saturday nights when we would head out to go someplace, we were on the boardwalk, and we would always run into these kids that were handing out tracks and talking about Jesus. Um, Campus Crusade, they were out there. That was their summer mission, right? Uh well, I couldn't help myself. I would always get into arguments with these students because I was not happy about what they were trying to sell. And it just, I don't know what was going on. Mm -hmm. I, I really, I was an angry person of, about what they were doing. Yeah. Um, and so we would keep running into the same kids. And finally, my buddies would say, dude, we're, we're not going to stand here for two or three hours as you argue with these people. We'll see you at the bar. Well, I would stay there and argue with them for two or three hours, um, just trying to get them to understand their perspective and what was going on. I mean, and not in a polite way, you know, really being a bully about it. Um, and so I kind of made it my mission of every weekend that we would go sailing or, or do some stuff like that to 
come after these kids that were doing what they were doing of preaching the gospel and trying to have people, you know, have conversations about Jesus. And so I made, made it my mission to really go against them as much as I could. And my rule was I wouldn't leave until they left or they cried. And if that, and if they did, then I won and I would go to the bar and hang out with my friends. Yeah. Um, and so that was the first summer. Well, the second summer, they were there again. And so I actually just decided to start reading the Bible so that I could use their own words against them. Mm. And just pounded the heck out of them. It was pretty horrible. I mean, um, and so when I look at a Paul-type experience of, you know, what, did it, what, what had to happen to Paul to bring him to Christ? Well, the road to Damascus happened. <laughs> and you're literally you're in this position of, who am I? I don't, I, like, I am nobody. And you cry out, yeah. right? And I remember being in Russia in that situation, not comfortable, worried about my buddy, worried about what might be next for us, and crying out. Because I had this understanding of what God was from arguing with the kids on the boardwalk. And it was that point at which that other guy showed up. You know, because it really was one of those situations of, God, if, if you show up and get me out of here, I'll, I'll do whatever you want, man. Mm -hmm. I'll follow you anywhere. And it felt like that answer was pretty clear. And so, again, when we got back to the United States, it really sent me on this, this serious mission of what does it look like to follow God? And is that something that I can even pull off? Am I, am I worthy? Well, the answer is no, right? But am I worthy to search it and, and figure it out? And it was really interesting. I started to meet people and had some people around me that, that were believers and really would answer my hard questions. And I started looking at it like a business almost of what are the advantages? What are the pros? What are the cons? You know, and you have to give up everything. Oh, well, that doesn't sound like fun. Um, <laughs> but God's going to give you everything. Well, that sounds awesome. But mm -hmm. what does everything include? Like, I'm kind of a businessman, right? Mm -hmm. I want to see the contract. Yeah. Um, well, there, there isn't really a contract. And I got really confused because I was studying the Bible with a friend one night. And, you know, he said, wow, did, did you see that verse? And it, it means this, this, this. I'm like, dude, where do you get that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, it, it doesn't say that. What do you mean? And, and I said, I don't understand how you, how you interpret it that way. And he said, well, I have the Holy Spirit. I'm like, oh, great. One other thing that I need, like you got this Jesus guy, you got this God guy. Now there's something else. He's like, yeah, the Holy Spirit comes into you and it, and it allows you to understand. And so really... In my greed to understand, I gave my life. Hmm. And the irony in the whole thing is I was driving to a bar to meet my buddies on this long stretch of road. And I literally had this conversation with God to say, you know, I, I don't know if I believe in you. But I know it's not about me. And so whatever you ask me to do. I will do. You just let me know. You know, you want to send me to Africa? I'll go to Africa. You just tell me what to do. And I ended up going to the bar, hanging out with my friends. And the next day, it was Christmas, and I was with my family, and my family was not believers. And they got into a fight. 
and that was pretty much Christmas. Normal occurrence. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I literally said, that's it. I'm done. I'm out of here. I grabbed my wallet, my keys, and my leather jacket. And I went to walk out of the house. And I made it to the porch, and it was snowing. And I felt like something stopped me. And out of frustration, I did that. Seriously, what's going on? Like I was talking to somebody. And a voice said, this is your test. I went, what? He said, yeah, I need you to go back and talk to your family. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like Africa, like no, anything, anywhere. Mm -hmm. I will do anything. That's not one of them. And for the next hour, I argued with God about what I should do and what I shouldn't do. And he actually, I went back in and preached the gospel to my family. And my sister became a believer in a month. My mom became a believer. My dad became a believer. And it changed everything. And it allowed us to kind of clean the slate of a lot of tough stuff that had happened throughout my life. Uh, and then God set me on a path. And what I found out is that <clears throat> I was really worried that he was going to take away my humor because uh, I love um, being a goofball and, and, you know, just goofing around. Um, he didn't take away my humor. I sense humor. What he did do is he showed me that all of the skill sets that I had, he had raised me up in that on purpose. And now it was time to use those skill sets in media, visual storytelling, to tell stories that would bring people to know him. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. And, and it wasn't necessarily overt. Uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of the stuff is covert. Yeah. It's covert in a way that, you know, when I read the parables, I love the parables because Jesus walks into a situation he tells a culturally relevant story. He asks a really hard question, and then he leaves. And you're stuck with the truth. And so a lot of the media that I tend to produce is more that style of challenging the way people think. Um, but there's other times that we straight up talk about Jesus and how important that is. I mean, a lot of people know me for the, the faith and sports programming that I produce. And we talk to athletes about their relationship with Christ and how that plays out in, in, on and off the field. And it, it shocks me how God uses that to move people to know who he is because they watch their favorite athlete talk about Jesus. And so just to know that mentioning the word Jesus can change lives, uh, it can be very offensive and bring up hardcore anger and aggressiveness. Um, but over time, or in who knows what the situation is, you know, it, it changes lives. And that's been incredible to watch and be a part of. And so, uh, yeah, just kind of walking the walk and doing what I can do every day. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for sharing. And, you know, when, when you got choked up, I, I felt it. I felt it sitting here of just how powerful your story is to you, even to this day of, and then once you went into your family, I completely understand why. Because that's, that's not an easy thing. Like you said, you send me anywhere. I'll go to Africa. Yeah. Send, send me back to Russia. I'll go there. 
But what I just came out of, no, don't send me in there. Yeah. I'm a tough guy. And I don't like to go back against my things. You know, when I left that house, I said, I'm leaving this house and I'm never coming back. So part of it was my pride. And, my, you know, when I stepped out there and had this conversation, it was God saying, you know, <laughs> you spoke too soon. You should, I mean, that, isn't that what we're always like, right? Like God tells us something and we look at them. Oh, yeah, we're gonna, I'm going to take you here. And, and you go, oh, yeah, I got this. And poof, you, off you go, right? Yeah. And, and you run off there and realize that God's not actually with you. And so you have to go back to where you left them and go, oh, okay, what were the directions? Yeah, I was about to get to that. Just can you hang in there for a second, right? So, it, you know, God's will is not always our will. Um, and our way is certainly not his way. You know, he does make the impossible happen. And so there have been so many experiences in my life where to see him show up and to answer those deep, dark questions or to guide you in a, in a time when you really don't think you even have a way or to see him actually perform miracles. I got a chance to do a lot of mission work in Costa Rica and serve with the church down there. and Just watch God's hand at work, again, healing people that here in the United States, in the Western culture, we wouldn't know what to do with that. And they just celebrate, you know. <laughs> um, and, and I think sometimes we're too intellectual for ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I'm a pretty simple guy. And so my faith is pretty simple. And it doesn't take me that much to believe that God works in the ways that he said he'll work in the Bible. Yeah. You know, and so to allow that to happen, well, just do it his way. You know, it's been a lot easier that way. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Thank you. And I mean, just with the mission work, I mean, complete 180 from where you were going. I and mean, what was that like in terms of It was of easy career? to get involved in mission work. I mean, it was interesting. I will I will tell a little story as well. You know, I got plugged into a church pretty soon after becoming a believer because I felt that was necessary. I, I mean, you know, if you're going to go, like, I don't know how to play cricket. I'm a soccer guy. But if I wanted to go play cricket, I'd have to go out and hang out with people who played cricket, right, to mm -hmm. figure it out. Yeah. And you'd need to spend some time in there to know how to do it, whether you liked it or not. If your commitment was to play cricket, well, then you got to be in there. And so that was uh, that's why I joined a church and, and really went to church to, to figure out what is this thing called Christianity. Uh, and I use that term loosely because in the last 20, 30 years, it's changed meanings, right? Um, it has this all darker meaning now. Um, but at the time, it, it was the word that defined you accepting Christ and moving into this relationship with Jesus. And it was interesting because I, I made friends with the pastor and a lot of men and just got to hang out and kind of experience this thing. And there was this kind of an unspoken thing that was going on where, you know, just overall, if you're a believer, well, the best thing you can do is be a pastor. And I'm like, well, shoot, I can't do that. I mean, I'm a pretty high achiever. Um, I can't do that. That's nuts. Um, he goes, well, the second best thing you can do is become a missionary. I'm like, oh. Well, what does that entail? Well, well, you know, you give up everything and you go serve in another country. Well, I don't know about the giving up everything, but I can go serve in another country. I mean, who doesn't want me on their leadership team, right? A guy that knows how to get lots of people in and out of foreign countries with lots of gear. That's a pretty good mission person to have. 
So, so like, I dropped yeah. into youth missions and it was really neat because I could organize people in and out and God really used the opportunities to train me in the spiritual side of things of what does it look like to pray or to, to have fellowship or to even affirm one another. Uh, oh my gosh, that, that go, takes me way back to just crazy stuff of, you know, I didn't grow up in a family where they told you ever how good you were or thank you for this. Um, and so I, I don't thrive. Like I don't need that. Um, and I really wasn't comfortable with it. And I, and I remember after one of the mission trips for a debrief, they sat all the leaders down and every person they would take a turn, they put somebody in the middle and you weren't allowed to say anything um, except thank you. And everybody <laughs> told you how great you were and what they saw in you. And I'm like, this is just whacked. Like, I couldn't take it. Yeah. No, no I, I completely understand. Yeah, I was broken. And I bawled. And I don't usually cry. And, and a lot of the emotions that are coming up for me now are, despite me being who I am, <laughs> God really does love me. Mm-hmm. no matter what and my no matter what's are pretty big and if he can love me holy cow he can love you so yeah just interesting stuff but what God told me in that, in that church relationship was you need to go back to your pastor and, and tell him something and that was you know I don't think I'm ever going to be a pastor. It's not who I am. A missionary, I can do, and I like that. But God's trained me up for something that not very many people are doing well, and that's media. And it's an industry that you can't get near. I said, I think your job as a pastor is to train me and everybody that sits in your congregation so that church doesn't just happen on Sunday. It happens every single day in any environment that you're in and that people can see the difference. You know, I teach here about excellence uh, and, and that's all I want people. To, I, I want you to be great at what you do and become amazing because sooner or later you're going to have what I call the first Peter 315 moment. Always be prepared to share the reason you have your hope, right? And mm-hmm. Through, through mercy and grace. And it's because of our faith. Well, when somebody asks that question, because you're awesome at something, you know, I have eight Emmy Awards, 29 nominations. People call me out of the blue just to see if they can meet to talk about how did you get there? And when they ask why, I get to say, do you really want to know? (laughs) And if the answer is yes, because normally it is because they think we're going to have this business conversation, um, I get to talk about this guy that I met. Oh my gosh, you met this guy? Oh yeah, he's amazing. Oh, and he wrote this book. Wait, it's a it's a bestseller. Hold on. Yeah, what's the name? Of, oh, it's the Bible. What? What is going on? Changes the conversation, but all of a sudden we're there. Mm-hmm. And so, again, that's the opportunity that we have to live our lives, so that people will ask why, and then we get to t- talk about Jesus. Uh, the great thing about having a testimony is that nobody can take that away from you. I can 
quote scripture to you and you'll just think I'm really smart. And it might even make you feel like you're dumb. And so that's usually when the argument starts, right? I'm going to stand up for me because you're just trying to put me down, you know, being smarter because you know something that I don't. But your testimony, nobody can argue with that. You can't tell me that I didn't experience what I experienced. You can't tell me that I didn't come back and go on a quest and find Jesus. Uh, you can't tell me that I don't believe in God now. I mean, you can tell me. I doesn't work. Mm-mm. I know who I am, and I know who I am in Christ. And that's part of the process of this living it, knowing that we're broken. You know, it's funny. A lot of people will come and, and say, I don't want to be around you Christians because you're just a bunch of hypocrites. And I said, well, then you're going to fit in just fine because you're right. Mm-hmm. We're hypocrites. You're a hypocrite. Like, we, yeah, we're all broken. Yeah. Uh, G.K. Chesterton talks about that being the best argument for the faith and for the church is Christians who sin. He says, yeah, makes sense because we're a bunch of humans. What do, you, what, do you, what do you expect? Jesus just comes in, you know, waves a magic wand and that's it? Yeah. And Paul literally talks about in Romans 5, you know, suffering produces perseverance. Mm. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And it's like, that's the Christian life. The Christian life is, is you go through this, these trials and these tribulations and you come out the other side smiling. And people look at you and you go, How? <laughs> and, espe- and especially, well, think about today with Ukraine and mm. Russia. I mean, there's certain Christians, you see these pictures of them gathering around and praying. I mean, if that's not a testimony to the faith, then I don't know what is. Yeah. There's a lot of things like that are going on. The things that shocked me but didn't shock me were some of them talking about, you know, the Russian army was moving in. And then suddenly there was this weird lightning bolt and, and all of their machines stopped working and... I mean, okay, like I said, I'm a simple guy. Maybe there's a God at, at, at work here just saying this isn't the right thing. I don't know, you know. Um, yeah, it's, I, I live around a bunch of scientists, and, and it's fun because they, you know, my family, they love to talk about and argue about whether this is real or whether it's not real. And, and again, my faith is so simple. Uh, and again, probably because I'm a simple guy uh, that, gosh, I'm glad to have an argument with you because that's kind of who I am. I'm a fighter. But when it comes down to those issues that might make or break whether you believe or not, to me, that's a faith issue. And I put that in a bin to go, I'm not smart enough to know. But I do believe that when I get there, Somebody's going to tell me what that was so that it all makes sense to me. But there's a ton of stuff I don't understand. I, that's a faith issue for me. Mm. Right? doesn't mean I'm not going to believe. Yeah. I'm actually going to believe stronger mm-hmm. because I've seen God in action. I've seen what he's done for me. I've seen what he's done healing people. I've seen just all kinds of things that after a while you go, well, of course he can do that. That's simple. Mm-hmm. Those are small potatoes, you know. So, yeah, my, my advice would always be, if you want to know who God is, ask him to show up. And be willing to allow him to show up in your life. And 
I think he's going to answer your questions. Hmm. No, I completely agree with that. Yeah. Completely agree with that. Well, thank you, Coach, for coming on and sharing your story. It was incredibly powerful. Yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck with this show. Bridging schisms is quite the statement. Um, but I think it's it's a noble, worthy effort mm -hmm. to have deeper and harder conversations about what it looks like to have faith. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's one of the aspects of this show is, you know, maybe being a Christian sometimes sucks. And maybe it's not all sunshines and rainbows and, you know, you got Jesus in your life now, so that makes everything easier. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's something more. Maybe our definition of good mm -hmm. doesn't just end with blessings, as we say. I remember running into one of my skiing buddies after I gave my life, and <clears throat> he said, I heard you got religion. <laughs> and I said, wow, it, it's the farthest thing from religion. It's this relationship. And, dude, I mean, I, let's sit down and talk about it because it's nothing like religion. So, yeah. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely.